Turn in your Bibles if you brought them this morning to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing in our study of Matthew. I'm going to change speed a little bit. I really would like to get to the final chapters in Matthew over these next two weeks, next week being Palm Sunday, the following week being uh, Easter. We celebrate the resurrection. So we're going to take a little bit more of an overview uh, these next few chapters. We talked last week just briefly about chapter 23. Uh, and if you haven't read chapter 23, especially if you're not familiar with it, I strongly recommend that you do. Uh, what you'll find, if you've not read it before, is in chapter 23, Jesus just, and I'm really not sure what word to use next, but eviscerates is the word that comes to mind, the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, the whole chapter is dedicated to Jesus telling the scribes and the Pharisees just how much trouble they're in. And what is extraordinary about that is he doesn't talk like that at that kind of length to anybody else. He didn't talk like that to the Sadducees. Um, he speaks in that general tone to the high priest, but that's in his trial, and it's a very brief window. But this chapter-long just litany of all the ways you guys are in big trouble is unique to the Pharisees. And I would suggest the reason for that is because that's the one group he was counting on the most to understand what he was doing. I will never forget the experience so many years ago, uh, way back in Bible college, um, had taken a course in the principles of interpretation, understanding the ways that the Bible can be read and, and coming to terms with the way we read the Bible. We take the Bible as the literal word of God in the original languages. That's why we talk about the Greek so much, because it was written in Greek. But we take it as his literal word. We take his word as authoritative. We believe that it says what it means and means what it says, and it's, it's only to be taken metaphorically or symbolically. If it's clear, that's the way it's supposed to be taken. When he's telling a parable, that's how it's supposed to be taken. We take his word literally. That's where the Pharisees were. And I can remember sitting in that class, and the more I learned about the way we read the Bible, and the more I learned about the way the Pharisees read the Bible, I realized it's the same. We are so much like them in the way we read the Bible. So... How do we avoid doing what they did? And if you read that 23rd chapter, you know how messed up they were. Well, it's a matter of the heart. The heart that we bring to the text. Because their mistakes were the same mistakes we can make. And so it's a, it's a very sobering chapter, chapter 23, because they were the ones, I believe, that Jesus expected if anyone to understand him, it was them. They were the ones the people trusted in. And so 23 is all, all about that. And then we come to chapter 24, and it starts in the first verse. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Father, we thank you for your word and ask, Father, that we might have wisdom to hear from you. That's the need of our heart, Lord. Jesus, that, amen. So Jesus has just finished this time with the Pharisees. Again, just lighten them up. All of chapter 23. He leaves the temple environs. And we've got to get in our mind here is when it says he left the temple, 
That didn't happen in the actual temple proper, what we think of as the Holy of Holies, that structure. That was just the center of the Temple Mount. All of these interactions with Jesus and the disciples and the multitudes and all, those happened in the courts on the outer side. We talked about this a few weeks back. The court of the Gentiles, the court of women. These courts as you got progressively closer to the main temple structure. He has left that area where he had this encounter with the Pharisees, made his way out of the city, and that wouldn't have taken long because all of that is right on the eastern side of the city. So you want to try to get the visual. We're on the eastern side of the city. That's where the temple is. He's gone out the eastern side of the city, and he's going down into the Kidron Valley. And he's going to go up from the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. Because by the time we get to the third verse, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. So this conversation takes place. We really want to get the visual on this. As they're leaving the temple and the city, dropping down into the Kidron Valley, which would have literally dropped them into the shadows. And I think that has kind of an effect of how things are happening here. In the temple environs, they would have been out. They could have stepped out of the, out of the shade into the sun very easily. Now they're steeping, stepping into the shadow of the temple mount. And as they do, the disciples turn to remark and remark to him about the temple buildings. Now the word that is used there isn't for the temple proper. In fact, as they're leaving the city and dropping down into the Kidron Valley, they couldn't even see the temple. Right? You're dropping down into a sharp valley, and they're looking back at this plateau where the Temple Mount would be. They wouldn't have been able to see the temple until they got all the way back up the Mount of Olives. So what they're looking back at isn't the temple itself, but the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And if you've been in Jerusalem where you've seen a good depiction of it, you kind of have a feel for this. But the, the picture you have to get, the Temple Mount is, it's a, we said mountain, it's like a hill. It's a hill flat on top where this complex is built. Then there's a steep drop into a valley, and it rises up on the Mount of Olives. And you've got to get that visual. What they're looking at as they drop down into this valley, the Kidron Valley, is a massive retaining wall. That's about all you can see from the Kidron Valley. And I do mean a massive retaining wall made with stones that weigh up to 1,600 tons, 40 feet long, according to Josephus. Massive stones. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. This is part of what is called the Temple Mount Complex built by Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, we've talked about him before a lot, is called Herod the Great because of his building. The guy was nuts about building. He built more and showed more advances in building than anyone else in the entire Roman Empire. He built cities, he built harbors, he built fortresses, he built aqueducts, he built theaters, he built hippodromes, horse racing tracks where they had, you know, the chariot things. He built, he built like crazy. And he loved to incorporate engineering advances into his building. Tell him it can't be done, he wanted to do it. If you're familiar with Masada, it's this huge plateau right in the middle of the Judean desert. It's hot, it's dry, it's a great place to go hide out this fortress complex on top of the hill. Herod decided it needed a swimming pool. And he built one. How did he get the water there? 
That's the kind of stuff he did. Amazing things. And when it came to the Temple Mount, that was going to be Herod's great achievement, his magnum opus. You see, the Temple Mount, if you go to Jerusalem or if you look at pictures today, that looks nothing like the Temple Mount when Herod started. That looks nothing like the, hemp, the Temple Mount of, that Solomon built or Zerubbabel rebuilt after they returned from captivity. It starts with David coming to a threshing floor about one acre in size and preparing that for the temple and then Solomon coming along and building a temple on this flat area about one acre in size. We know it was that big because we have historical accounts saying that the spot was just big enough for the temple itself. And we know the size of the temple from the Old Testament, the actual structure of the temple. That continued that way up until Herod's time. And Herod looked at that and said, not good enough. We're going to take this one acre flat top. I kind of think about the butte just a little bit bigger kind of thing, you know. About an acre on top, we're going to take that and we're going to make it 27 acres. 27 times bigger. How do you do that? You got one of two ways. You either cut it down until as you go down it gets bigger, or you, you build it up. You can't go down for two reasons. One, the temple's already there, and he didn't want to tear it down. And he wanted to keep it as high as he could to make it look good. This, is, this whole thing is built not, not to worship God. This whole thing is to show the world how great Herod is, right? So what do you do? You build massive retaining walls the size of the level of the Temple Mount top, and you backfill it with gravel. Well, that's all going up. How do you do that without machinery? Well, you don't necessarily see it in a typical picture of Jerusalem that you see, but if you back up and look at look look back a little bit, there are some mountains around Jerusalem that are higher. So what Herod did, you know, you can do a lot when you got a million slaves. Herod built a ramp from the hills that were higher than Jerusalem down to Jerusalem. Or the slaves did. They then cut these massive chunks of rock and literally put them on rollers and moved them downhill. Everything he did was downhill. And then after he builds this massive 27-acre platform, they then take the same slaves and remove the ramp. So it looks like it just happened. Incredible structure. When Josephus visited there in 70 AD, he estimated, and some have suggested Josephus was prone to exaggeration, that's still debated, but Josephus mentioned that on that eastern side, on that eastern side, the greatest height of the wall was 450 feet above the valley floor. That is massive. That is impressive. That is huge. That is what the disciples are pointing back at. Look at this massive retaining wall. Lord, what do you think of that? And he says, it's all coming down. Every single stone is coming down. Now put yourself in the minds of the disciples just for a second. What has your visualization been? What has your dream been when the Messiah came? 
what was the Messiah going to do? Well, the first thing is he's going to run the stinking Romans out. You're going to get rid of Pilate. You're going to get rid of the, of, of the corrupt, fake kings like Herod Agrippa up north. And they're, they're done. They're gone. You're going to remove the Sanhedrin because they're not worth anything. They're corrupt. You're going to get rid of all ungodliness. You're going to have a pure, righteous king ruling a pure, righteous nation. And ground zero is going to be what? The temple. And your Messiah just told you the whole thing is coming down. Not one stone left upon another. I would imagine that the walk from the bottom of that valley up to the top of the Mount of Olives was fairly quiet. Because they got a lot to process. Their whole world, has, as if Jesus hasn't already turned their world upside down, now every assumption they have made about what the Messiah is going to be or do is gone. And so we come to the top of the Mount of Olives in verse 3. It says that Jesus is sitting there. I suspect he's looking back at the Temple Mount. Cannot imagine what's going through his mind. It's only a couple, three days before the events of Good Friday. This may be as late as Thursday. He can see the Temple from the Mount of Olives. He can see the fortress where he will be beaten and whipped beyond recognition. He may even be able to see Golgotha. We don't know. But he's looking at the city. And they come to him and they say, tell us when these things will be. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's actually three questions. And Jesus answers these three questions not in three specific steps, but kind of over an arc of time. Verses 4 through 8, he's going to talk about what's going to happen before the end. That's their first question. Verses 9 through 14, coming to the end, and then verse 15 to 28, the end itself. So that's kind of that's how we're going to look at it. So first, um, verses 4 to 8, it goes like this. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See, you're not frightened. These things must take place. That is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, in various places, famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. That's the now. We're there now. And any doubt about that was put to rest in A.D. 70 when Titus brought 70,000 Roman troops and leveled that city. If you, if, when, when the, if you go to Jerusalem today and you go to the old city, that's not the city Jesus walked into. No, the Crusaders built that. The Muslims reinforced it. When the Crusaders got there, it was an unwalled village because the Romans leveled it. Nobody lived there. They cleaned the place out. So 4 through 8, everything talked about that. That started um, at least as far back as A.D. 70 and continues on to today. Starting in verse 9, they begin to talk about that process of what will take place from then right up to the end, what brings us to the end. And what we see through those verses is just an arc of continual increase of unrighteousness and ungodliness things going from bad to worse. About the end of the 18th, beginning into the 19th century, the, the church bought into the idea that the world would get better and better and then Jesus would come. There's no traction for that in the New Testament. Things get worse and worse and then Jesus comes. And it, it's just a continuing decline of human behavior until we get to the one really good marker that we have. 
the one really good marker that Jesus gave them to know when they were right at the end of the now. And that's verse 14. I'd like to talk about that just for a few minutes. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. There's our marker. Now, anybody have any idea how many languages there are in this world? You see, when he says nations, the world is ethnos. It's better translated ethnic groups. Ethnic groups best identified by their languages. According to Wycliffe Bible translators, who know translation better than anybody, they count about 6,000 languages in the world. You know, if you've had the experience of learning a second language, you know the exhilaration of that first time you actually almost have an intelligent conversation with somebody in the second language. Yeah. That first time you can talk to somebody and you actually get like two or three sentences out before they realize that you're just a beginner, you really don't know. And oh, you just feel great, your head goes, you get, oh man, that pumps the ego like nothing. And then you realize, and I've only got 5,998 left if I think I'm going to talk to everybody. 6,000 languages is massive. According to Wycliffe, less than half of those have been translated. Less than half of those have a gospel. Um, in, in kind of rough numbers, 31% of known language groups don't have anything of the scriptures in their language. 26% the language is in process. Now that's kind of discouraging because you think the church has been at this for 2,000 years and we're less than halfway there. That's discouraging. But the speed at which translation is happening is a totally different story. There has been an exponential increase due to technology that has certainly helped, but also the sheer number of people and the number of organizations involved. Wycliffe is no longer the only organization doing this. It is extraordinary. Uh, a 2015 um, article written by Bob Greeson, who's the CEO, or at least was in 2015, the CEO of Wycliffe, their goal in light of their work and everybody else's work, this is mind-boggling, is that by 2025, about four years from now, every language will be in the process of translation. By 2025, every language in the process of translation. It takes 20 to 30 years on average to produce a whole Bible. Technology can't shorten that. So you figure, take his numbers, uh, if by 2025, every language is in process, it takes 30 years for an entire translation. That means somewhere around 2025. Troy, I, I don't think you and I are going to make it. I don't think so. I'd be 98. I'm not going to say. Okay. Starting in 2025, take 30 years, that's 2055. I'm 98 if I make it. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. But a lot of you will. A lot of you will be here. Sometime in your lifetimes, younger folk, somewhere on planet Earth, somebody is, I don't know what computers will look like, but somewhere on planet Earth, somebody's going to hit a save print button. Job will be done. Two thousand year project done. And then the end will come. 
Great, that means it gets better, right? No. Next verse. Verse 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, that which is being spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. It gets even worse. A lot of people, the abomination that causes desolation, a direct reference to Daniel chapter 9, where he talks about 70 weeks, he talks about the Messiah, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says in verse 27, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even a complete destruction. Now that's already happened once in part. It will happen again. Uh, a lot of people get really excited, and we should, we should, when discussion of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem takes place. They especially get excited in the Middle East when that discussion takes place. I do believe it is consistent with Scripture to say that the temple we, will be rebuilt. I think the way that this is laid out, the temple has to be there. But do we realize why the temple is going to be rebuilt? It's going to be rebuilt so that it can be defiled. Only this time, I would suggest, this is my take on it, you're certainly free to disagree, this time when it happens, when the ungodly enter the temple to defile it, the whole world will be watching and will be applauding. You see, it will be built to give mankind one last opportunity to turn toward or turn away from the living God, and the world will turn away. Because the world as we know it is in the power of the evil one, and that's why it will continually go from bad to worse. That is why in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, Matthew speaks of great tribulation. It will continue to get worse until it simply can't get any worse. So what does this mean? Come back to the disciples' three questions. What does this mean? Well, when will all this happen? Well, let us confidently say it's happening right now. It started no later than 70 A.D. with Titus and his legions. What will be the sign of his coming? Well, when things continue to get worse. As things get worse and worse until they can't get any worse. If you add to the capacities of the unregenerated human mind, the technologies we have today, it is truly horrifying. Put the technologies that we have today into the hands of the evil that was the Nazi regime. What do you come up with? The possibilities. Only one could imagine what that would have been like. It won't take imagining long because that will be one of the signs of his coming. But all the increasing arc of evil will do is guarantee that the end is near. The disciples' final question, what will be the sign of the end of the age, is a really interesting question because of the word they use. What will be the end of the aeon? comes into English as eon, very, very readily. It literally means forever. So the disciples are asking the question, what will be the end of forever? Well, that makes no sense unless you see forever through their eyes. Forever is the world as they've known it. Forever is the world as they've thought it would always be. And that's how we see the world. I mean, we, we get up in the morning and we go about our stuff like it's going to always be the way it is. 
And things are always going to continue the way they are. That is especially true when we're indulging in sin. Because we're thinking, that well, this is going to go on forever and I'm going to get away with it. You know, if you think about it, sin always has two components and they're related. It always has deceit. There's always deceit. There's always the lie that you're going to like this, it's going to be good for you, you're going to have fun, da-da-da-da-da. And that's always true in part. But then with time, the, 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 the deceitfulness of that becomes obvious. And then we go to phase two. We either step out of it or we delude ourselves enough to think we should stay in it. Starts with deceit, continues with delusion. They're related, right? Where's that come from? Well, the father of all lies. The evil one himself. He's the one that lied in the Garden of Eden. I would suggest he lies to himself, too. And I would suggest he lives with the delusion that somehow he's going to win. That somehow the, the evil one will be able to survive all of this and somehow come up on top. Well, the closer we get to the end, the more obvious it will become. That's not going to happen. We all know what that's like in doing something we shouldn't do. And right at that point, you realize you're going to get busted. You tend to get kind of mad, right? You tend to get kind of frantic. Well, that's what this is all about. This is the evil one becoming frantic. That's just evidence that he's about to fall. That's just evidence that the forever we've gotten used to is, is over. And when does that happen? Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the nations of the earth will mourn, they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I used, to be a, I used to be a lifeguard. We had an expression. All right, everybody out of the pool. That's what this is. All right, everybody out of the pool. It's over. Fun time's over. Verse 31, he will gather forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Three questions. When will it happen? It's starting now. What will be the sign of the end when things just can't get any worse? And three, what will be the sign of the end of the age when he returns and gathers his elect? So what does that mean to me in the here and now? What do I do with that today? Right? Well, this is how it impacts me where I live. Number two, two things. Number one, reminds me that everything here is temporary. We are so good with investments, you know? As a culture, we are really good with investments right? How would you handle an investment that you knew on a certain date was no longer going to exist? You know, if they passed a law that said on January 1st of 2030, your 401k is going to vanish. At some point, you would change your investment strategies, wouldn't you? Right? Well, we should do that with our lives. We need, to, we need to address our investment strategy with our lives because so much of what we invested in the here and now is just not, it's not going to be around. Peter said it will be consumed with great fire so that the elements themselves will be gone. Now, what little I know of chemistry, that's not supposed to be possible. But when God says it'll happen, it'll happen. Mindful that 
everything here, if I can taste it, if I can touch it, if I can smell it, if I, it, it's temporary, one thing lasts, we do. People are what last. People are what will continue. Hence, what should we be investing in? The second thing it reminds me is that evil, all evil, is in fact rooted in deception. It starts with deception. It's sustained with delusion. So I just don't want to go that route. It is folly, sheer folly. It all points to Rome, what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, and I'll end with this. Paul says this in Romans. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer has mastery over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you that in your goodness, Matthew was mindful that day as they walked from the temple down through the valley of the Kidron, up to the Mount of Olives, Matthew was mindful uh, to at least remember these things well enough to write them down because they mean so much to us if we have ears to hear. Lord, it is so easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day -day and lose track of the fact that everything we see around us, save the people with whom we interact, Lord, Everything around us is temporary. I don't think it was just the stones of the Temple Mount that Jesus was speaking of when he said, not one stone will be left upon another, Lord. For we know in the consummation of time, everything we can see, taste, touch, or smell will be gone. And we will face eternity. And we will face eternity with the understanding of our relationship with you, Lord. And the way we spend eternity will be defined by the nature of our relationship with you. And the joy and the beauty of that eternity, that always, Lord, which is truly eternity and always, will be so very much defined by the way we have interacted with the people around us, Lord. Father, give us wisdom to be wise investors of our lives. Father, in the business community, the finance community, I know when the subject of investment comes up, they always say the best time to start investing is now. Well, that's true of this as well, Lord. As we invest in those around us, Lord, in their lives, in their hopes, as we respond to them in, in their struggles and pains, Lord, may we be your voice your person, your character. May that be our investment, Lord. For your name's sake, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.